Ayn Rand held that man is a being of volitional consciousness. We asked for your questions on the objectivist theory of free will, and you submitted them. Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we'll answer your submitted questions on free will. We hope to make our Q&As topic focused in the future, and free will is our topic for this week. Uh, if you have any questions that come to mind during the show on the issue of free will, feel free to submit them in the uh, YouTube Super Chat or the Zoom Q&A module, and we'll try to take up some of your questions if we have time. I'm Sam Weaver. I'm a junior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, and with me today are Ben Bayer, ARI Fellow and Director of Content, and Mike Mazza, ARI Associate Fellow. Welcome, Ben and Mike. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so, Mike, did you want to start us off by uh, setting some of the context uh, for these, this topic? Um, yeah, so I think the best way to start this is to, is to discuss just the kind of basic outline of, of Rand's view on the, on the free will question, and then we can use some of the uh, questions you all submitted or that you will submit uh, today as a way to um, elaborate some of the details. So she argues that we do have free will. Um, we have free control over our behavior and, um, our, and our actions. So in that respect, she's uh, fairly standard in thinking, you know, there's free will, you, you raise your hand, you have the free control over that. But her theory is, um, is non-standard in that it goes much deeper than that. It's not just the view that we have control over, you know, raising our hands and, and how, we, how we behave, but, but we do have control over that. The, the deeper level of control she argues that we have is that we have um, what's sometimes put as intellectual or cognitive self-control. That is, we can control our process of thought and um, more fundamentally, whether or not we engage in a process of, of thought. So in, in, um, the, in her writings and in the, the literature that builds on her and sometimes put as the basic choice is the choice to think or not to think. Um, in Leonard Peikoff's book, uh, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, he uses the word focus. We can focus our minds. We can choose to focus our minds. We can choose to raise or, or lower the level of focus. And essentially what that means is we have a fundamental choice to um, put our minds in contact with reality to focus on the facts and seek the truth. Um, I think we have a uh, quote from, um, from Gold's speech uh, in Rand saying this in, in the context of her, the speech in her novel Atlas Shrugged. She wrote, that which you call your soul or your spirit is your consciousness and that which you call free will is your mind's freedom to think or not. The only will you have, your only freedom, the choice that controls all the choices you make and determines your life and your character. So what she's saying in that passage is that we have direct control over our thinking and therefore direct control over our beliefs and our values. And as a consequence of this, um, we have indirect control over our emotions, our character, our personality and dispositions. Um, and now, just a, a little bit of elaboration on that. So when she's talking about the fundamental choice as a 
choice to focus. Um, what she's not saying is that, what she's not talking about is say, um, your ability to concentrate, though you can uh, increase or decrease your level of concentration. That's not really the kind of, that's not really the fundamental um, um, to the theory. The theory, the fundamental is um, focus or the choice to think at all. Um, and the example I like to use to kind of get people on, on board with what she's saying is if you've um, ever had the experience of kind of drifting around daydreaming, not really directing the content of your of your own mind. And then all of a sudden you think to yourself, like, wait, what, what am I doing? What's going on? You kind of snap yourself back to reality. I think that sort of experience is, or that sort of choice is um, really the, at the deepest level, what we're talking about. That is, you have the ability to attend to reality or not. And that's the, that's the locus of the free will choice. And as, as far as I know in the history of, of philosophy, that's unique uh, to her. In, there are people who say things around the edges of that, um, but th that's um, really to get that and make that front and center in a theory of free will is, um, is uniquely uh, Rand's. Um, now, when we say that we have direct control over our, our thoughts and indirect control over um, subconscious beliefs, emotions, character, et cetera, um, you can't take the claim to be that this is some like infinitely elastic ability that no matter what happens to you, like in terms of brain health or psychological health, that you can always choose everything all the time, and you can just by an act of will. I, I'm, um, I'm a shy kind of guy, but I want to be more outgoing, so I'm just going to choose to, and then it'll just happen. That's not the claim. Um, the claim is that the mind is bound by causality, just like anything else in nature and that um, it might take work to do it or even figure out how to do it, but that fundamentally we, we have this ability to control um, all, of the, all of the things I was um, talking about. Now, the final point I wanted to, right, Ben, it looks like you wanna say something here. Make the final point and I'm just gonna you know, yeah. make an so observation. Now, the final point I wanted to make is about the metaphysics of choice. And that is, that when Rand and objectivism are talking about having the capacity to choose and to choose between alternatives, you have to take that as the most um, literal way you can. So when you make a choice, the future outcome and you know the future trajectory of your life is not determined until you make that choice. And what makes one future uh, happen versus another is your choosing. Um, so it's in a very metaphysically real sense, you face alternative possible futures and your choice is what causes one of, or the other, or, you know, however many there are to actually come to pass. Um, that, and uh, Ben, I think you want to jump in. Yeah. And the reason that it, you face these different possible futures is because of something that was in that quote that we had on screen before, which is that it's not 
just that your control is limited to the cognitive level because of the fact that your, uh, your thinking influences your actions and influences your motives and your character, uh, you obviously will do different things with the, depending upon the different ways that you think. And that is what leads to the different possible paths. And I also wanted to mention that th this is a point, this is a viewpoint of Ayn Rand's that's really super important to her overall philosophy. And it's part of the reason that we wanted to take questions on this topic. It's, it's really distinctive uh, that it's, that this, that the, a belief in real free will is shot through all of the major branches of her philosophy. So uh, you see it in her, you see it in her epistemology where she thinks the whole reason we need epistemology is because we're a volitional being who needs guidance with regard to how we're going to choose to think. Uh, it's certainly for the same reason part of her, her ethics. The whole idea of a moral code is, is a code of values accepted by choice and we have to choose to live uh, if we have any reason to be moral at all. Uh, so it's not just guiding our choices, but it sets the whole context for the reason that we need morality in the first place. And then in her, in her politics, individualism versus collectivism is essentially an issue of free will versus the opposite, which is determinism. What makes us individuals at the end of the day in her philosophy is not just that we have separate bodies, but that we have a, a free will capacity to go our separate ways from other people and live separate lives. And we need the freedom to be able to do that, which is why we need to have individual rights. We're not uh, programmed by some kind of collective Borg that makes us act in lockstep with other people. So this is really central. You could even talk about her aesthetics, but I'll, I'll stop there. So our first question uh, relates to that, the point that we choose between possible futures, that that's part of her theory of free will. Uh, so we had a question from Amith who asked, metaphysical libertarianism or libertarian free will is one of the mainstream incompatibilist positions on free will. What is the difference between that and the objectivist view of free will? So this is a question that's pretty clearly coming from somebody who's studied about how uh, free will is debated in the academic literature. And the, and the person's wondering, I think, with good reason, how how the kind of academic terminology relates to some of the things we're going to be talking about today. And the simple answer is what they call, what philosophers call metaphysical libertarianism is, as I understand it, at least just a generic academic term uh, used to describe a belief in robust free will of the kind that we've been talking about. So it's, it's metaphysical libertarianism because you want to distinguish it from the kind of libertarianism most people have heard of, which is a political viewpoint, like the belief in the non-aggression principle and uh, championed by people like uh, Murray Rothbard and von Mises. And, and objectivism is distinguished from that politically, by the way, also. But uh, it's so metaphysical as opposed to that political viewpoint. And it, they use the word libertarianism, I think, not because of any special affinity to the political view, but because free will-ism is, is a pretty awkward sounding term. And we have an ism for the opposite view, determinism. And so philosophers wanted an ism for, that names the belief in free will. Now, what is that belief? Mike has touched on these already insofar as he was conveying the objectivist view of free will, but it's, it's worth pointing out there's a broader subject here that philosophers debate about that objectivism has a perspective on, which is generally speaking, what they call metaphysical libertarians believe in is the kind of free will where you are a 
the fundamental cause of your own actions. You're the prime mover of your own life. And B, part of what that means, I think, is you face a real, you face real alternative futures, as Sam's been putting. You face alternate possibilities. You determine the outcome, which of the two possibilities you're going to take. And that's as opposed to determinism, which says, no, your actions, your choices, they're all necessitated by prior antecedent factors, by prior conditions from you know, long before you were born. So you only face one possible future as a result of that. It's also as opposed to one special kind of determinism, or it's often a kind of determinism called compatibilism, uh, sometimes called soft determinism. It's, it's the view that, yeah, there's a sense in which we have free will or some kind of freedom, uh, but it's consistent with our still being determined and only having one future. That's why it's called compatible, it's compatible with that view. And people can wonder why, how is that even possibly not a contradiction? Uh, the reason philosophers think it's not is because, well, they really are giving us a view of freedom of action as opposed to uh, freedom of the will itself. They say, well, you're free in the way that we can hold you morally responsible for what you do. Uh, if you have the ability to act on your desires or if you, you're able to respond to some kind of reasons where, yeah, you're not chained, you're not crazy, you're not a prisoner, you can do the things that your mind and your desires are telling you to do, but it's still possible that all of them are determined. So you can act on your desires, but your desires are determined. So that's compatibilism. And Amith mentioned that the what philosophers call metaphysical libertarianism is usually seen as an incompatibilist view, which means, no, this is, this is a view of free will that really takes the freedom seriously, that really means you don't just have one possible future. There's, there's alternate possibilities you face. There's a forking path you take constantly in your life. And so that's the generic view of metaphysical libertarianism, what philosophers call metaphysical libertarianism. And objectivism is just one take on that generic view. It's a specific position on exactly how it is we are the prime movers of our own actions and what the fundamental alternative is that we face when we make choices. And Mike already commented specifically on how objectivism takes a position on that. We are the, the fundamental cause because we are uh, in control of our thinking and, and the fundamental choice that we make is the choice to think or not to think. So you say objectivism is a specific position on us being the, the cause of our own actions. Uh, so do you have a view on to what extent objectivism, the objectivist view on this, is, uh, is an improvement over other popular views that you might say fall into the metaphysical libertarian camp? Is it a significant improvement or is it just kind of a, another way of coming at the same conclusion? Well, I, I think it's a... Yeah, I think it's a significant improvement. Um, now, so the the basic reason it's an improvement is I think to the extent that it shares something in common with other metaphysical libertarian positions, it's an improvement in that it it goes deeper. That is, it really sees what is the fundamental thing that we have choice over. Um, and now, I, I'm not like an expert on the literature on free will, the academic literature on free will, but I have looked at some of it. And the issue of what's the fundamental choice doesn't really come into focus much, if ever. Um, 
So just by bringing that question into focus, I think it's, a, it's an improvement. And then by getting what I think is the right answer is an, is an improvement. And this um, going more uh, fundamental to our understanding of free will helps us um, answer some, some questions that come up in epistemology and um, ethics having to do with what it is we're, uh, we're causally responsible for um, in our thinking and our in our characters and behavior. So, <clears throat> for example, if you have a guidance conception of epistemology, which objectivism does, that is, it says what epistemology does is give you guidance for forming judgments, getting knowledge, um, uh, making sure the things you believe are you know true and you have good reasons for them. It's epistemology is supposed to give you guidance for that. It's telling you, you should do one thing, you shouldn't do the other thing um, with your mind. And that as a consequence of this, you know, certain beliefs are rational or irrational. That is, you know, kind of like you're, you're being irrational, you're responsible for, you have an irrational belief, you're responsible for holding that belief. We can, um, you know, judge you in, in the very least by saying, yeah, you should have done something else. You should have arrived at a different belief. And you might have the question, how can I be responsible for the things I believe? I mean, it's not like I can choose what I believe, can I? Like, think for a second. Um, I'll give two examples, as a kind of silly one and a serious one. So um, can you believe that you're a uh, paperclip? Can you choose to believe that? No, it's okay. <laughs> you can try. Okay, so now a more serious example. Um, whatever it, your view on the abortion issue is, so let's say you're, you're pro-choice. Can you choose to be pro-life? Just like right now, just change your mind. And you'll see that you, you can, might say the words in your mind like, oh, I'm pro-choice now, but like really mean it. And it doesn't seem like you can. So then how can you blame somebody for what position they hold? How can you say they should they don't have a choice over it, do they? Well, objectivism, the objectivist view of free will, I think helps us understand the way in which you do have that responsibility. Because you do have a direct control over things like, will I think about this more? Will I think about all of the evidence? Will I seek out new evidence? If somebody, if I'm uh, if I think uh, life begins at conception for reasons A, B, and C, and somebody says to me, what about D? Do I think about D or do I just give a kind of hand wavy dismissal of this thing that threatens my cherished belief? We have control over all of that. That is, we, ha we have control over how we use our minds, to what extent we really do probe and ask questions. And it's because of that, that we have responsibility over our beliefs. And there's a similar issue, I think, in ethics, you think like, what's my character? Well, it's the sum total of my emotional dispositions, my desires, my values, my beliefs, etc. All of this interacting in a way to, you know, um, that, that I, that I'm the sort of person that I am. But again, you might think, well, we just talked about belief, but you might think like, well, my desires, like I love chocolate cake, or, or, um, I love a certain sort of friend or a certain sort of partner, romantic partner, 
or I love a certain sort of career. It's like, can you just like choose to do the opposite? You think the career I love is dealing meth. Like, can I just not love that? Can I just choose not to love that anymore? Um, or if I love philosophy, can I start choose to love um, cooking meth in my basement? No, I can't just choose to do that. But if you have a, a deeper understanding of how, um, how um, free will operates such that it can determine, um, uh, it, it, can, it can cause you, your exercise of free will can cause you to develop certain beliefs and um, the desires and emotions, then you can start, it, start to say, oh, this is the way we um, develop a character and the way we're responsible for developing our character. And I think we're gonna talk more about that a little later, but those are, those are two areas I think that really having a deeper understanding of free will sheds a lot of light, light on um, the way in which you're responsible for your, um, the, your judgments and beliefs and the way in which you're responsible for uh, the components of, of, a of a moral character. Yeah, the last thing you mentioned is Ayn Rand's idea that man is a being of self-made soul. And uh, that the, the, the way in which our control over whether we think or not influences all of the above things that we have control over our beliefs, our feelings, our actions, our character, and that's and therefore our future, something we were talking about before. Uh, I'll just add a couple of other advantages I think this view has over uh, the other versions of libertarianism actually I'll not just two but three the first is I think it's true I think you can you can defend it uh using using the self-evident introspective evidence of uh the kinds of things you were mentioning before where you said you know you're, you find, you find yourself zoning out and then you realize no I better get back uh take the take the reins again um that's the the primary evidence that we have that this is true uh, a second point is that so Mike you said that other metaphysical libertarian views don't really bring into focus the question of what is the fundamental choice. I think you're I think you're right about that, but uh, it's not in focus for them, but they they will implicitly default on a certain view. And, and very often, most of the time, their view is we have a basic control over our actions. So like whether you raise mm -hmm. your arm or lower your arm is the kind of stock classroom example that they give. And it's it's just a direct choice you have over your actions that bypasses your thinking and your your feelings and your character. And so uh, one one advantage there is, and you said it go, the objectivist view goes deeper. And I think part of the reason why why that's an advantage is because it helps explain the actual phenomenology that we have that most of the time when we do things with our body, we do them for reasons, you know, that have to do with our thinking and have to do with our uh, our motives. And so the objectivist view explains that. And if you don't explain that, it's easier to believe determinism and to think, well, I don't just do things for no reason at all. I have reasons for the things that I do. Determinists often think that means it needs to be determined, but not if you're the one who chooses the reasons, which is in effect what the objectivist view holds. And the, uh, the other thing that I would say related, that's closely related to the question of determinism is, number of these other metaphysical libertarian positions are indeterminist, which means that uh, they understand freedom as meaning uncaused, as meaning having mm -hmm. no uh, 
basis in the nature of, of things, except to say certain things are a-causal, certain things are you know, metaphysically random, and free will happens when this metaphysical randomness occurs. And that is not objectivism's view. Objectivism's view is that, uh, you hinted at this before, Mike, that, that, objective, that free will is itself a, uh, a fact about the nature of human beings. It's in our nature to be able to make choices. And so it's caused by our nature. It's, and that's the respect in which it's causal. And you don't have to believe in indeterminism and reject causality to think that certain entities can face more than one future. You just have to understand that causality is not equivalent with being determined by antecedent factors. In fact, causality is not even is not really fundamentally at all about uh, how events occur in time. It's a relationship between an action of a thing and its nature. And sometimes, well, fundamentally, I think that relationship is a simultaneous relationship, not one that comes, you know, before and after certain events in time. I'd actually like to raise a question we just got in the uh, the Zoom Q and A uh, that's related to the point you just made. Then, uh, so uh, the person who raised this question uh, brought up the uh, the idea of causal determinism, the idea that all the material in the universe has to obey the law of physics, and for it to be causal, it needs to be deterministic in nature. Um, and wanted to ask, uh, how do you describe free will without relying on the idea of a magical source? for free will uh, while keeping free will compatible with causality, with the causal nature of reality. Mike may want to say something about this as well, but uh, yeah. in a way, I think I've already answered the question, which is it's, you, you would only be tempted to think that free will is magical if you think that, if you have a very narrow view of what causality is, if you think in effect, causality is the way billiard balls operate, one bangs into the next. And the stereotype is, well, that's the way science explains things. But I mean, if you know anything about the way physics developed over the course of the 20th century, you know the billiard ball model is very, very far from the way things operate on the subatomic level. And that is not to say that necessarily things are behaving in an indeterministic way on the quantum level. But they're certainly not following the model that we're used to of thinking uh, about things uh, like billiard balls. And well, free will is a faculty of human consciousness and human consciousness is a highly sophisticated apparatus. And uh, we, we don't yet know exactly how it works. As long as we have a broad enough concept of causality that entails things act according to their nature. Well, there's a very specific nature that human consciousness has. And, what we observe is that it is consistent with and necessitates our making choices. And that's an observation that we make of, of a fact that our theory, our view of causality has to be reconciled to, not the other way around. It's not that we've got a prior conception that causality is like billiard balls, and therefore there's a question whether or not we face a choice. No, we face a choice, and our view of causality has to be accommodated to that data. Mike, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so I, I don't... I don't, um, so I agree with what you're saying, but I think you're being too generous to the view of causality to tie it to, to tie it to billiard ball, because I don't even think billiard balls work that way. If you think about a billiard ball, why does a billiard ball behave the way it does? Well, let's, let's just say it's a, I don't, what are billiard balls made of? I'm not sure. It's a, it's a very hard, dense, solid. 
right? So if you impacted one billiard ball into a balloon, it would behave differently than if you impacted one billiard ball into another. So what's the relationship between the solidity and its behavior? It's not one comes before the other in time. So I think there's a, there's a bias to think of causality as causality means temporal su succession um, or necessary temporal succession. If A has to come before B, then that means A caused B. That's just, so that's not the objectivist view of causality. It's not the right view of causality. It's a wrong view of causality that emerged um, sometime in the uh, 1700s. It's in the Renaissance and it's not a good one. And it doesn't, like if you actually look at like actual scientific explanations, they're never like this. What caused the pandemic? Some prior event? No, the answer is a virus, which is not an event, which is not a thing in time. Now, that's not to say time isn't involved in a lot of causal explanation, or maybe even most causal explanation, but it's not synonymous with it. And it's not the fundamental. So there's a kind of, yeah, it's not the fundamental. There, there's a kind of view um, that, uh, like, well, you know, so if you have this. A follows B in time kind of view, and then you hear about a uh, view, think about free will, and isn't, isn't free will saying there's no thing that precedes the choice in time that makes the choice happen? Like, so that means it's not causal? Well, it only means it's not causal if you have a certain view of causality, and that view is false. And now I, I do want to say that you, the objectivism isn't really making a claim about the deep causality of free will in terms of any kind of like physiological mechanism. Like, is it the case that um, when you choice, there's when you choice, when you make a choice, there's no prior event in time that necessitates it? Yes. Is it a choice that there's um, uh, no prior event in time that, um, is required but not necessary for the outcome of your choice. I don't think it follows that that's not a possibility. And is it the case that um, when you make a choice, like it's a kind of spontaneous um, exercise of mental energy? I don't think I don't think there's any claim in any in any direction here. It's just that whatever the actual physical processes are, it has to be they have to be such that. Um, prior factors don't determine the outcome, even if there might need to be some prior factors. Necessitating conditions uh, are not the same as, uh, necessary conditions are not the same as sufficient conditions, is, is one way of summing yeah. that up. Let's turn to another question on free will. Uh, this one asks, what are some misunderstandings of the meaning of free will that confuse or complicate discussion of the subject? And what are the sources of these misunderstandings? Maybe epistemological errors. Yeah, this is a this is a really good question because I think uh, confusion about what free will is even supposed to be in the first place causes confusions on uh, confusion about whether or not we actually have it. You've got to get clear on the concept first before you can decide if it applies to anything. And we've seen this come up in some of the questions we've already discussed today. So if you think that free will means the uh, ability to do anything as though by magic, like I can use my free will to fly to the moon, 
well, clearly we don't have that. And if, if that's what you think free will is, you'll, you'll end up saying, well, there's no free will. Now, not, not too many people suppose that it means that. The next idea, though, which is closely related, you do see some people sometimes using as their understanding of what it is. So the ability to create yourself out of nothing whatsoever, as though you were a god, that's at one point in Sam Harris's book on free will, the actual idea that he equates with the meaning of free will. And he says, well, we don't, we don't have that. Uh, you know, if I don't have any kind of genetic, uh, organic mental problems, it's not something I can take credit for, as opposed to somebody who ends up uh, developing a, a psychopathy, let's say. So I, I'm not responsible for the fact that I uh, don't have the soul of a psychopath. Uh, there are a lot of things about my life that I might not I leave aside questions about whether or not your own choices can contribute to your mental illness. But uh, there are lots of things about the circumstances of my birth that I can't control. Uh, I can't control who my parents were. I can't control uh, the genetics that I was born with. I can't control many of the choices my parents made when I was being raised. I can't control uh, much about my physiology. Uh, perhaps there's a range uh, uh, of my intelligence that I have no control over. All of these are true, uh, that you can't control these. But uh, that free will is not the ability to control your, to create yourself out of nothing as though you were a God, which God doesn't even do, by the way, uh, in the, in the mythology. So it's what it is, is what we were talking about before. It's, it's the ability to make a certain fundamental choice, choice to think or not, with regard to the material in your life that you're given. So there's a lot of circumstances, a lot of facts, a lot of metaphysically given facts about ourselves that we can't control, but we still have a choice about what to do about them, how to process them, how to think about them, how to act on them. That's, that's what free will is uh, fundamentally about, and that's a common misunderstanding. There's other common misunderstandings. Some of them have also come up. There's, there are versions of free will that water down what it actually means to something that's trivial and not what's significant about free will. So that's, for instance, the view that the compatibilists have, the soft determinists who say, all that free will is, is something like the ability to act on your desires or to respond to certain kinds of reasons, even though the reasons and desires are you know, pre-programmed. That empties the concept of its meaning. It, it, it takes away the whole idea that what free will is really about is being the fundamental cause of your actions and facing a real alternative in the course of doing that. And uh, the, the last one that I, could, that I could mention here is another one that's come up, and that's the kind of indeterminist gloss on free will, which some metaphysical libertarians take when they say what it means to be free is to be uncaused, which is kind of related to the magic view, but uh, usually without the, the kind of popular connotations associated with that. Uh, but if you think that, no, everything in the universe has a cause, things act in accordance with their nature, and someone tells you freedom means you're not caused, that's another reason to think this thing doesn't exist. And that ends up being a kind of straw man from objectivism's perspective, because that's not the right way to understand freedom for reasons we discussed. Uh, so we have a related question that came in anonymously from Reddit on whether or not animals have free will. I think there's a kind of um, mis maybe misunderstanding is maybe a little uh, 
a little strong, but it's a misreading of what uh, objectivism is claiming in in the philosophy. So I think I think we have a quote from uh, Rand. We want to put up on animals and animal consciousness. Um, so it's a pretty long quote. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll maybe I'll just summarize. So in uh, for the new intellectual, Rand is comparing human consciousness with animal consciousness, and she says that we share with the animals a certain sensory capacity for perception, but that what's different between humans and animals is that human beings have the conceptual faculty that is the um, that is the power to uh, abstract form abstractions and concepts, um, and she's claiming that um, it's in particular the conceptual level or the process of abstraction that we have free will control over. Um, she says, now just reading the quote, the process of abstraction and concept formation is a process of reason, of thought. It is not automatic nor instinctive nor involuntary nor infallible. Man has to initiate it, sustain it and bear responsibility for its results. The free, the preconceptual level of consciousness is non-volitional. Volition begins with the first syllogism. So if we take this as the context for asking um, the question, do, do animals have free will or is uh, objectivism making a claim about animals? Um, I think we have to, let, let me just say, my view is that it's anytime you're talking about the cognitive capacities of animals, you have to be careful because there's things we can say based on let's say pre-scientific observation. And then there's stronger claims you might make that are a matter of science that uh, I'm not in a position to answer. So the kind of pre-scientific things you can say is that, well, look, whatever is going on in animal, inside an animal's mind, um, if, if it even has one, um, it's not like what's going on in human minds when we're performing this process of abstraction. Um, so it's, it's hard to say, I think that whether for sure, whether or not animals have any sort of mental mechanism beyond the most obvious ones, like animals can't do math and science and they can't do the things that allow human beings to have language. So animals don't have concepts or abstractions. Do they have something that allows them in some limited way to see things as similar or do they have something that in some limited way allows them to have some kind of control over which decision or action they take um i think that's when you start getting into more a scientific uh question and the reason for that is that if you think about like how do i know that ben, ben has a conceptual faculty like mine. Well, I think there's kind of two things going on. One is that I have the ability to introspect my own cognitive capacities and think about how they relate to my outward behavior. Now, when I, when I think about Ben's cognitive capacities, all I have as evidence is his outward behavior. I can't introspect his mind. Um, 
so with thinking about human behavior and human capacities, we have <laughs> we have uh, maybe if I'm an uh, X Man or something, I could I could do that. But um, when we when we're thinking about human behavior, human cognitive capacities, we have two lines of evidence. We have the people's outward behavior, and we have our own introspection of our of our of our own um, of our own capacities, and we can work to integrate those two together into a theory of um, of, of human behavior, and that's um, largely what we do in philosophy. When we're thinking about animals, we have no introspective access to them, so it's very very you have to be very cautious about making claims about the inner workings of an animal mind, especially when you're talking about some super sophisticated you know com compare chimpanzee to a squirrel like chimpanzees they do a lot of things that seem human-like you know I, I, but that's a that's a matter of scientific expertise i think um so did the question do animals have free will probably not but i think ultimately to say no you have to you have to know a lot more about um animal cognition than a philosopher would and is the question, does this matter one way or the other for, for philosophy? I don't think it does. So, so what a chimpanzee has, let's say, let's, let, maybe a squirrel, if a squirrel has free will, does that like suddenly mean like, what? Well, what's the impact of that for ethics or epistemology for human beings? Like there, there's not any really. Now, it might be super important for, if you want to start to get into like, what's the, um, neurological mechanisms behind certain aspects of human cognition to find out that surprise, surprise, um, chimpanzees have free will. Like now you can start to do some kind of experimentation, comparative, um, like Mills methods, um, investigation that you couldn't do, um, if you didn't have another being with free will to compare human beings to. So there's, there's, it's an important question. It's just not going to impact, um, center page philosophical questions um ben do you want to chime in on that looks like you're gearing up to say something uh no i think i think you're basically right and just i i agree with this assessment probably they don't but especially when you're talking about higher mammals uh there's there's more legitimate questions and i, I agree it would have to be a scientific investigation so we have a, uh, a couple more questions that are related both to this topic and to each other. So I'll give them both at the same time. Uh, one was another question from Reddit that asked, do some people have more free will than others due to, for example, age, position, mental state, or mental illness? And the other one was a YouTube super chat question that was submitted earlier in the, in the broadcast by Friend Harper. And I want to take a moment to thank Friend Harper for uh, contributing um, the donation through YouTube, but we appreciate it. Um, Friend Harper asked, uh, on the choice to focus as the core of free will, can one train their ability to focus? They say they have a close friend who has ADHD, and, uh, and it breaks their heart to think of, of someone having chemical limits to the ability to focus. Is a person like that helpless, or can they improve their ability to focus with practice. Let me actually take the super chat question first and then we'll go back to the, the, the other one. So one issue there is, this relates to something that Mike brought up at the top of the show, which is focus in the objectivist sense, when we're talking about a theory of free will, is not the same thing as attention. 
And so what focus is, is bringing your mind's resources to the purpose of knowing and doing what you need to do to live. And in some, in many contexts, that means applying attention to certain things. It can also not mean that if, if I'm, so I can be fully in focus and on vacation or I'm sitting on the beach and not tending to too much except for, you know, my tan or something like that. So it's, it's not the same thing as attention and ADD is attention deficit disorder. Uh, now I have not studied that disorder carefully. My suspicion is the way that I would understand what's happening is it's, it's harder for someone with ADD to pay attention. Now that doesn't mean that they can't focus. Uh, what it means is that it's, it's harder for them to apply their mind to very concrete certain kinds of uh, problems. And that what this means is they get distracted more easily. So there's more things going on in their subconscious that are popping up and competing uh, with their attention uh, for any number of different reasons. And so what that means is that somebody will have to do more work to attend and to concentrate. Uh, the work that they do is work that they do by means of uh, the choice to focus. And, you know, it may well be that uh, taking certain kinds of drugs uh, will will help them insofar as it'll quell some of the sorts of distractions that they're getting and therefore make it easier for them to, to concentrate on just one thing. But it's important that focus is not the same thing as concentration. And so the fact that some people have ADD does not mean that they uh, don't have free will or something like that. Um, uh, ben, can I say something? Yeah. This? Yeah, just, uh, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that free will is a feature of nature. And that means it, it has a nature, even though we might not know a lot of, about it in terms of like its um, uh, biochemistry or, or neurology, but it's uh, however it works, it works somehow. And if that somehow gets interfered with or damaged, then we should expect you, people might have what you might think of as uh, deficient um, uh, deficiencies of ability with respect to with respect to focus, like how much energy it takes to do it, how often they need to, to do it in order to maintain it. Um, that's just kind of speculating. I mean, there, there'd be a, uh, a science here to figure it out. But yeah, you should, if it's a natural process, like every other natural process, you should expect it to have preconditions and um, you should expect it to be able to be interfered with, damaged, changed, manipulated, um, should should we have that knowledge to do it. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. Can I do something with my focus to ch change my ability to focus in some kind of way? Uh, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, I don't think it's, out of I mean, one thing that's important realm. to bring out is that ADD, insofar as I understand it, is just a difference in degree uh, from what everybody else who doesn't have that condition faces. All of us all the time are having things, in effect, unpredictably come up from our subconscious, and we have to decide what to deal, what to do with them. We don't control all the stuff that comes up from our subconscious. We don't like. If, if a tangent in conversation is suggested to me at one point, I have to decide, am I gonna go on that tangent or not? And people with ADD just happens to them more often. Uh, and you, you face the same choice with regard to that, like, what am I gonna do about this? 
So Sam, you also asked this other more general question that was submitted earlier, which relates again to the question of, are there misunderstandings about what free will is? And it was, do some people have more free will than others? And they mentioned, do age, position, mental state, illness uh, relate? And we've, we've commented on at least one example of a mental state, of a mental condition, and how that relates. Um, and but, but the way I would answer that question, stepping back, is to say, well, in one sense, look, you either have free will or you don't. It's your capacity to make undetermined choices. It's your capacity to make choices where there's a real alternative outcome where it's going to make a difference to your future. And in that respect, uh, anybody who has free will, they either have it or they don't, doesn't come in degrees. So some people don't have more of it than others. Uh, that's in one sense. But then there's another sense, and this is in relation to some of the things we were just talking about, where, well, you either have it at a given time or you don't. But you, there can be times in your life when you have it and times in your life when you don't with regard to specific situations and, situations and, and, and conditions. So just to give a really simple example of this, nobody has free will when they're asleep. You don't have, unless you're a really good lucid dreamer and whether that really exists is an interesting question, uh, but almost nobody has free will control over their dreams. Uh, or when they wake up in the morning. This is something that is a, pro a product of physiological processes that uh, are beyond our control once we've fallen asleep. Even whether we go to sleep is not really something we have free will control over. And so uh, there are parts of your life where you have free will control and parts where you don't. And there may be some people who are in more parts of the uh, non-free will condition than others. So like somebody who's in a, who's a psychotic, when they're in their psychotic state, I don't even think people who are psychotic are always in psychotic states, but somebody who's in a psychotic state uh, probably doesn't have free will at that time. And if someone has a condition that causes them to be in that state more than others, then there's a sense in which they have less free will in the sense that there's more, there's, there's less time in their life when they're in control. And I think you can say something similar about very young people, uh, old senile people, it, obviously the capacity has to come online at some point and with regard to certain kinds of questions. And so like, I don't really think that a newborn infant has free will yet. And so in that sense, you know, an adult has free will and an infant doesn't. Uh, and it may be that you gradually develop the ability to make choices over more and more uh, areas of your life because of cognitive development. And in that sense, adults have more than younger children do. And uh, you know, it, could, it could even be the case that because, uh, because what Mike was saying before is true, because free will has a nature and it depends on our capacities and our capacities can be uh, better or worse or damaged because of choices we make or things that happen to us. It could be that our capacity for agency is uh, diminished, uh, if not fully eliminated. And that's why you know, there's 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 such a thing as uh, uh, you know considerations in the law for when people have diminished capacity and we decide they're no longer responsible for their actions and can't be blamed for what they're doing. And so, rather than sending them to jail, we'll send them to a hospital or we'll give someone else power over attorney over their affairs. So there are there are there's a sense in which um, people have uh, more free will than others. But that's as long as you understand it to mean like there are more times in their life when they are in control and you can you can gradually gain more of those times and lose more of those times depending upon your state of
development. Um, we had another related question about the uh, understandings of free will, but I think we should skip it and go to the rationality question in the interests of time. Sure. Yeah. So the rationality question is another one from Reddit that asks, how is free will different from rationality? Uh, I'll take this. So there's, um, I mean, I, I assume in asking the question, they're noticing some connection and they're also noticing some difference. So what's the connection between the, between the two? Well, so we've said that free will is fundamentally the choice to think or not to think. It's to exercise cognitive self-control um, and you know, thinking, cognition, and human beings. We're talking about our, our exercise of a certain rational capacity. So it, it, the connection is that the, ex, the exercise of free will is the choice to be rational or not. That is, it's the choice to bring our faculties for understanding the world, figuring out what's true, figuring out what to do. It's the choice to bring them online and then to uh, you know, stick to it, to maintain them, to not abandon them for something else. Um, in the one of the previous Rand quotes, we saw that she thinks this is the only thing we have free will over. Um, there's a, uh, Leonard Peikoff puts, um, puts the point as reason or rationality is will. So he kind of makes a strong claim. Um, now, the, there's an issue with the connection between, um, I'm thinking about how to phrase this, part of how we know we have free will is introspecting on our own rational processes. We see that this is what it is that we have, um, we have control over. Now, the difference between the two is that free will is an aspect of the rational capacity. It's not identical to it. So it's, we have a certain capacity to um, notice similarities and differences in the world and uh, organize and retain them and abstract from them um, to, to reason deductively, inductively, to search for explanations, all of those things are um, rational processes. And free will isn't deduction, it's a aspect of deduction. That is, I can will to reason deductively and accept the conclusions or, uh, or not. So um, now a further relevant issue for this question is for any concern with, like if you're concerned with being rational and we all, we all should be, um, there's always a kind of question we have to ourselves is, am I really being rational about this? Um, let's say you're, uh, you're trying to understand something emotionally painful to, you know, around a friendship. And you know that when um, interpersonal things become emotionally fraught, the um, odds of self-deception increase so you become increasingly concerned with, am I thinking rationally about this? Am I 
really concerned with what's true about what my friend did or am I trying to make excuses for them? Or, um, and there's a, there's a question that comes up is, is how do I know I'm being rational? And if you have a wrong view of free will or if you reject free will, it's difficult or impossible to, to give a satisfactory answer to that question. But if you think that the fundamental um, control we have over ourselves is the capacity to think or not to think, really the answer to, am I being rational about this, boils down, like, how do I know I've been rational about this, boils down to, I chose to be. I know I'm rational because that's what I chose. And um, I, I think that's really the deepest connection between free will and rationality. It's that, you know, if you think of rationality as a, um, not just as the capacity, but the exercise of the capacity for reason, then the answer to the question, how do I know when I'm being rational is I'm choosing to do so. Um, and Can I, I just add something really to that? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Which is just to elaborate on what you said, because I think it's important, which is if you don't have free will and have and you're not able to know it in the way that you just claimed yeah the the best that you can say is well i know i'm being rational because of x whatever that x is well how do you know that x is true well because of y how do you know that y is true because of z and you, you end up in a regress to stop the regress you've got to have a principled reason for stopping at whatever reason you're going to give and the question is how could you ever stop that regress and that's where the kind of knowledge you were just talking about comes in you know it because you chose it and that's and it's it's more than uh and it's it's what they sometimes call maker's knowledge it's true because you made it be true and it, it's it's a it's a special kind of knowledge because it's it's you're, there's not a detachment between you and the thing that you're knowing uh it's it's you are uh being the change you want to be, as, as they say. And, and by the way, that, that is the reason why um, uh, determinism is self-refuting. I think maybe you were going to say something about that, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the clock. We're just about at the hour. I'm, and I'm wondering if it makes sense to save that conversation for maybe so. Clubhouse. Maybe so. Yeah. yeah, and we should maybe take a, one or two new questions on new topics that came in. Yeah, so do you want to wrap up now? Uh, well, let's let's see if, yeah, let's let's wrap up and see if there are questions that came in on new, new topics related to free will that we want to answer. Okay, so uh, yes, I mean, I think a good question related to what uh, you, were, you guys were just saying. So Mike, you, you said that uh, our choice to be rational is the one thing that we have control over. Uh, so we had a super chat question also from friend Harper. Thanks again for contributing friend Harper uh, about how much free will do we have over our emotional states? Mike, you had thoughts on this, I know. Yeah, so um, I think the, the way I think about it is uh, in terms of direct versus indirect. So I can, like, if I'm sitting here thinking about something, I can direct, like I can, as it, by a pure act of will, um, stop thinking about it, or I can ask further questions 
just take two things I can do. Um, but if I'm uh, afraid of spiders and somebody throws a spider on me, I can't by an act of will not feel fear. Um, and I think that's generally true about our emotional states that they're, um, they, that when, when, when the cause of them um, happens, like you don't have an act of will not to feel that emotion, even if, even if what causes the emotional state is like you thinking something. So I can, as an act of will, think about spiders. And then um, now I feel fear and I can't just as a pure act of will not have felt fear. Um, but we do have control over them because our, uh, our emotions are um, you know, automatic responses based on um, things we believe and value. Um, and then, you know, and then a perception of something relevant to them uh, or, or thinking about something relevant to those things. And we can, you know, we can change by uh, uh, deliberate acts of will, even though it might take a long time, uh, the things we believe and the things we value. So if I'm afraid of spiders because I think all spiders are deadly, like I can read a book about spiders and really, okay, they're not all deadly and the ones in my house aren't deadly and there's no deadly spiders that live near me. So the odds that this spider I'm seeing now that it's deadly is pretty low. Now that won't immediately make me like, it's not like I read a book and then like my phobia is gone, but um, I can, you know, part of getting rid of the phobia would be changing my beliefs. And then another part would just be rehabituating myself or like exposure to go to the zoo and look at a spider through glass and that kind of thing. And there's a whole, you know, beyond that, there's a whole like science called psychology that helps you do this kind of thing about all kinds of emotions and, um, yeah, so I guess in some you don't have a direct control over it, but you have direct control over enough of your um, mental life that you can change these things. And in that sense, you have free will over them. Uh, ben, if you don't have anything to say, I kind of want to answer the Calvinism question. Uh, I don't have anything list. to say, so go ahead. Uh, Sam, why don't you tell, what's the Calvinism question? Calvinism question. Sure. So the Calvinism question that we which we got in the YouTube chat uh, asked, what is the objectivist response to philosophies like Calvinism, whose premise of all things being determined by some cosmic force is almost unfalsifiable and who blame all things on providence? Yeah. So the, re the reason I wanted to answer this. Yeah. So so I want So um, I don't know what you want to say, Ben, but here's what I want to say about this. My basic answer is that my response is that that's all made up like religions are all made up so what do i say about that i mean it's unfalsifiable because it's made up if you can make up one thing you can make up another thing and you can keep making things up no matter how many responses to it i have um so the, who, the premise is that it's being determined by some cosmic force. What cosmic force? And why should I take it seriously? I mean, in that, in that respect, Calvinism is no different than astrology. It's just some made up cosmic force determining my life. Like, there's no reason to believe in that. Um, now, the unfalsifiable thing, um, it's an almost unfalsifiable. I mean, I don't think in terms of falsifiable or unfalsifiable typically, but if I were, I would say I wouldn't say that it's almost unfalsifiable. I would say that it that it is unfalsifiable. Is it? There's some God who determines your future, and I say, 
well, yeah, but I can choose. And he says, yeah, but he determined that you chose. And what, you know, whatever I say, he, the person who believes in this can make up some new thing. That's why it's unfalse. Anything, it's once you get into the game, Because it's made up. Because it's- Yeah, once you, get, once you start playing the game of you're allowed to make up things and then I have to rebut them, there's no end to that because you can always make up some new thing. Um, so that's my basic response to that. And that's just broader than Calvinism. That's any kind of, yeah, any kind of make-believe, any kind of made-up story, astro astrology or mainstream religion. The thing I wanted to say about this is not so much to answer the question because I agree with your answer, Mike, but I would comment on the question by pointing to this is the example of Calvinism and it's not just Calvinism. It's almost all Judeo-Christian religion is a really good example of how Free will is not a magical religious idea. That, that's the stereotype. The stereotype is, oh, you'd have to believe in some hokey religion to believe in free will. Well, actually, if you look at all the major Judeo-Christian religions, they don't believe in free will either. Now, they, some, a lot of them say that they do. Um, a lot of them say that they believe that God's going to punish you for the choices that you make. But when you look very, very carefully at their justifications for that, when you look at what the theologians say, you find out they're all compatibilists of the type that we were talking about before. The, the view that says all that free will is, is the ability to act according to your, your desires. You're not in jail, you're not in prison, you're not shackled, nobody's pushing you around with a gun. You're free in that sense, you have free action, but where do your desires, where does your will come from? Well, what people like Augustine will say is that's all predetermined by God. Uh, and who are you to claim that uh, you <clears throat> that you could somehow get your own salvation without God's grace. That would be the sin of pride. And uh, we're all we're all sinners in the hands of an angry God and not through our choice. So the whole idea of original sin is 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 opposed to free will. And that's shot through all of Christianity. There's no way you can think there's a omnipotent, uh, omniscient, all-powerful God who knows everything about the future, who made you, who made the whole universe, uh, who knows everything you're going to do. There's really no real good way to reconcile that with the idea that you also have some meaningful free will. You can redefine free will and water it down to mean something that's compatibilistic, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about free will. And, and uh, it, so someone else in the chat asked a question about what do you say to the modern neuroscientists who demonstrate through brain scans that uh, uh, somehow we don't have free choice. And, and this is a question I've answered at greater length elsewhere. And I, the reason I bring it up in connection with this is because that's the same attitude that, oh, if you're being scientific, uh, you can't really believe in free will. There must be some religious idea. There's an article I wrote where I talked about both of these issues, both the Sam Harris, Benjamin Libet neuroscience experiments, and also the idea that uh, free will is unscientific. It's called Why Champions of Science and Reason Need Free Will. It's on New, New Ideal in June of 2019. Take apart the uh, neuroscience experiments show they don't prove what they're often shown, uh, what they're often said to prove, and that generally speaking, uh, free will is actually fully consistent with the scientific worldview, with the idea that uh, it's good to be rational, it's good to be objective. We shouldn't just believe our prejudices, we shouldn't believe what we wish or hope is true, things that we make up. Uh, all of the, the whole idea that that's bad to do presupposes we have a choice about what we're going to believe. We should believe rational, objective things and not otherwise. 
And if you don't think we have that choice, it's sort of pointless to talk about whether we should be scientific or not. All right, I think it's about time for us to uh, to wrap up. But uh, if you have further questions or, or want to discuss the issue of free will further, uh, we are having a clubhouse session after the show. So you can uh, download the clubhouse app and uh, join the uh, the Rand Club. And uh, I believe Mike and Ben, you will both be there and uh, mm -hmm. be able to talk about some more questions. Uh, we also wanted to mention some resources that might be interesting if you want to read more about uh, the objectivist view of free will. Uh, and I don't think we have Ben's article in here, but uh, that's one, and we have plenty of other resources available to you as well. Uh, so first, of course, there's the Ayn Rand lexicon entry uh, on the issue of free will. This gives you some of what Ayn Rand herself had to say about the subject. That's at bit.ly slash arfreewill. Uh, then you can also uh, read the a chapter on this issue from the book Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand by Leonard Peikoff. This is a really valuable resource that gets deep into the, the, the philosophy of, uh, of free will. And you can uh, see about that book at bit.ly slash phil, P-H-I-L, of Ayn Rand. Uh, there's also a, a, a talk, a lecture, uh, from Ankar Gatte called Seize the Reins of Your Mind. Uh, this is a, a good introduction to the objectivist view of free will, and you can access that at bit.ly slash seize hyphen reins. Uh, Ankar Gatte also wrote uh, a chapter called A Being of Self-Made Soul uh, in a col published collection called A Companion to Ayn Rand. Uh, so that you can read more about that book at bit.ly slash companion to Rand. Uh, and there's a lot of valuable material in that book, uh, but this chapter specifically has a lot to say about the objectivist view of free will. Uh, finally, uh, Harry Benzwanger, in his book, How We Know, uh, has a chapter dedicated to free will. That's chapter 10. Um, and if you are seeing the YouTube broadcast, you can see the, uh, the Amazon link to purchase that book. Uh, we also want to announce the, uh, the topic of next week's New Ideal Live podcast. Uh, this podcast will be on dismantling the neoliberalism straw man. And that will be on Thursday next week, so a different day. Uh, and it will be at 12 p.m. Pacific time or 3 p.m. Eastern. And Ilan Jurno and Nico Sotirakopoulos will be the presenters on this topic. It should be fascinating, and I hope you join us for that. Um, finally, uh, we really appreciate uh, your support. Those of you who uh, contributed on Clubhouse, we appreciate your donations. And of course, all the donors who support the Institute and make this show possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please, you can show your support also by subscribing to our channel on YouTube. This will also enable you to uh, get you, our new content in your feed. If you click the bell, you will get notifications when we have new content or when we go live. Uh, also, if you are watching this on whatever form, whatever platform you're watching it, uh, it's helpful if you like the show and uh, comment. This helps the algorithm uh, boost uh, boost it and uh, share the episode if you uh, have friends who you think 
would be interested in uh, hearing more about this topic. Um, that goes for YouTube, goes for Facebook, whatever platform you're on. Um, finally, if you have questions or comments about today's episode, or if you have suggestions for topics we could discuss in future episodes, please email us at newideal at einrand.org. We read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. Uh, so thanks again for uh, tuning in today for this discussion of free will. I hope you enjoyed it and hope you join us for next week's conversation. Uh, thanks, Ben and Mike, as well, for being here today. And join us in Clubhouse shortly. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.